This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Gregor Campbell discovers a sad memorial. Judy Southworth tells us about the history of Chinese market gardeners, and Bill Southworth profiles Dunedin politician and lawyer Sir Robert Stout. Throughout the province, most of our war memorials are prominently displayed. But Gregor Campbell has come across one on a country road near Dunedin that has been obscured by a high hedge. It has quite a story to tell. If you take the old main road north out of Dunedin, up the hill past the Normanby Tavern and just past the site of the Brown House, that place of myth and legend, you'll find a tight corner which takes the curve around where the Upper Junction School once stood. On that corner beside a sheltering line of old macrocarpa trees, is where the families of the Upper Junction School remember the boys who went away for the big adventure and never returned. Their experiences in World War I are a microcosm of those of the boys from other schools and towns and cities all over New Zealand. The area was recently restored, and I was there just a few days ago to count 17 names from the Upper Junction School. Those 17 names are commemorated where the school playground used to be. 17 is a large number for a place which could never have even been called a village. The 17 were not heroes, at least not officially recognised as such. They were young men who left their families and did not come home again. Well, one did. Edward Sainsbury, one arm paralysed by a bullet in his shoulder from the Somme, rests in Anderson Bay Cemetery. He never recovered from his wound and the two bouts of trench fever he caught in hospital. William Aitchison was a labourer in North East Valley when he was called up in October 1917. He joined the Otago Regiment in the field just after the gruelling liberation of Bapaum and before their last exploit at Le Quenois. The day he died was a quiet one for the Otagos, and it is possible that William died during one of the sporadic enemy artillery attacks, which were features of quiet days. Godfrey Barnett was born at Waitahuna and went to Upper Junction and Kakanui schools, possibly because his father was a teacher. He was drafted in 1916 and was with the Canterbury Regiment when it faced the German Spring Offensive in 1918 thrust into a gap in the line to face the attacking Germans. The attack was repulsed, with losses which included Private Godfrey Barnett. The Brennan family lost four sons in the war. Adolphus, who died of heart failure during training. John, who served with the artillery and was killed in action in October 1917, a disastrous month for New Zealand troops. Richard, who died almost exactly a year later near the end of the war, and William, who survived measles in Egypt and dysentery on Gallipoli, to die in a German preemptive artillery strike on Allied gas cylinders in 1916, either from shells or from the gas. Joseph Collins was not a good soldier, 
being arrested at least once for breaking out of camp while training. In Egypt, he did field punishment for offences concerning alcohol and time in hospital with a venereal disease. But he was soldier enough to attack Ottoman troops with the Auckland Mounted Rifles in late 1917, the last battle before taking Jerusalem. Joseph did not get to Jerusalem. Andrew Donald was a cheesemaker in Carterton when he enlisted in the Otago Regiment. He endured diarrhoea at Gallipoli in 1915, dermatitis on arrival in France in 1916, then VD two years later. A desperate enemy dropped gas shells on the Otagos in September 1918, and Andrew was back in hospital. At the end of October, he rejoined the fight and was with the Otagos advancing against German positions on the 23rd. A successful day saw many prisoners and much ground taken with a loss of eight men, one of whom was Andrew Donald. Bruce Harvey was working on his father's farm at Sawyer's Bay when he enlisted at the end of 1914. He fought at Gallipoli, spending 14 days in cuffs and fetters during the month of June for theft of stores. He was unfettered when he was part of the August offensive, a last attempt to beat Turkish forces. Bruce went missing on the field, and his death was presumed by a court of inquiry in Egypt after the evacuation. Carl Lamont was a cooper at Spates Brewery when he enlisted in the Otago Mounted Rifles. He got to Egypt, but died there of smallpox. The Paisley family were another which lost more than one man in the war. Sergeant Alexander Paisley's death was another which was decided on by a later court of inquiry. It is possible that he and Bruce Harvey were buried by Turkish soldiers. Andrew Paisley was farewelled at the Upper Junction Schoolhouse in April 1915. He was with the Otagos on the disastrous October 12, 1917 at Passchendaele. Many men were not recovered from the field that day. The fact that Andrew was buried indicates that he was one of the men killed by their own artillery before leaving the trenches, as opposed to the many left behind in a tragic attack which involved wading through mud to German pillboxes surrounded by uncut barbed wire. Harold Paisley was wounded at about the same time. He survived a gunshot wound to the thigh, but died in 1919 in Scotland of pneumonia. George Shaw was with the New Zealand Rifle Brigade during its part in the Somme Offensive in 1916. Their commanding general described their performance as beyond praise. The compliment was an expensive one. George Shaw was one of the 1,733 men of the New Zealand Division who paid the price. John Williams' story was a little difficult to track down due to his enlisting under a false name. He served with the Canterbury Regiment on Gallipoli, then left for France. Warfare was a little different there, and one night, German artillery ranged across their positions, followed by a 50-strong raiding party. Parts of the line were taken and recovered after desperate, confused fighting, when the enemy had been repulsed, and a number of men dug out from under the rubble. They counted 39 dead, among them John Williams. There, briefly, are the stories of the Upper Junction School boys. 
They were a mixed bunch, some bad, some good. Some doubtless were heroes, and all of them deserve to come home. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. The Taiyere Plain was once the site of flourishing Chinese market gardens. The rich river valley soils either side of the Taiyere River produced much of Dunedin's vegetables. The market gardens are no more, but as Judy Southworth discovered, they are still fresh in the memory of those who laboured there. The Chinese arrived in Otago as gold miners in 1867. Nearly all were from rural villages around the fertile and densely populated Pearl River Delta region. The families had been engaged in farming for generations. The land was rich and fertile, but a combination of overpopulation and political and social unrest turned the area into a place of poverty and peril. This led many families to send their menfolk overseas to support families. Californian and Australian gold finds attracted men. Then in 1861, gold discovery here brought them to New Zealand. More than 2,000 had come by 1869. Some became merchants, hotel keepers, cooks, shopkeepers, laundrymen and fruiterers. Some were farm workers and labourers, but others became market gardeners, as by 1871, gold was hard to find. The early gardeners were on the west coast of the South Island and in Auckland. Soon gardens were established in Dunedin and central Otago and in many other New Zealand centres. Virtually every town and district in New Zealand had Chinese market gardeners to supply their needs. They grew a number of crops, often growing throughout the year. Tobacco was grown in Queenstown, Lawrence and Speargrass Flat. They were careful to select the best land with a good supply of water. Their intense work ethic and persistence also contributed to their success. The early gardens were quite small, half an acre to five acres, run by two or three men. Some were able to return to China every few years to take home earnings and enjoy life back in the village. Gardens in Dunedin were at Forbury, where Kings High was later, Kaikra Valley, Northeast Valley, North Tyree, Mamona, Wingatui and Outram. Outram was the main centre of community activity for the families. Linda was a new bride when she was brought to Outram to live with her new extended family. Here, she was expected to bring up her children, run the household and work in the garden. I first arrived in June 1962 to be with my husband, We'd been married in Hong Kong. I found it extremely cold after Hong Kong. I was very lonely at first. Fortunately, my father-in-law was very kind and very helpful. I didn't mind the work. One day was the same as any other. I enjoyed being out of doors, so put on my gumboots and follow my husband. He said to drive the truck while he loaded it. I said, I don't know how to. He said, just pull this lever and that lever. So I just did it, and that's how I learned to drive the truck. As well as working in the garden, I cooked for the whole family, about seven of us. When I received letters from my family in Hong Kong, they would encourage me to be most helpful and show much kindness to my husband and father-in-law. I would shed tears and feel homesick. There were celebrations, Double Ten, the traditional Chinese National Day, Chinese New Year and screenings of Chinese movies. The Chinese population grew slowly. In 1920, they were denied permanent residence, though around this time, wives could join husbands. 
25 per year could come. But this was a short-lived policy, as in 1925, the government set about discouraging the Chinese population from increasing. However, a student permit scheme was introduced, and from 1930 to 41, 261 students came to New Zealand. The Japanese invasion saw the New Zealand Chinese Association and the Presbyterian Church appeal to the New Zealand government to allow Chinese men to bring their families here, and in 1939, Cabinet agreed. After the war, more students arrived until discouraged in 1951. Many of them helped in the market gardens. Wives and children were allowed to join husband for two years, then they were to return to China. Many market gardeners hereby got their families to join them. Communities of single men were transformed into communities of families. The New Zealand Chinese Association and the Chinese Consulate petitioned to allow the wives and children to stay, and in 1947, the request was successful. Some families brought up their children to be bilingual, but there were also Chinese language classes, particularly in the 1940s and 50s. Here's Linda again. I lived with my father-in-law for 10 years until he died in 1975. After gold mining, he had come to Dunedin and became a market gardener in Outram. He had a horse and cart and sold vegetables door to door. He said he had a pigtail in those days and people would call out, Ching Chong Chinaman. He'd had 20 acres and we purchased 50 acres to garden as well. We've experienced all sorts of weather, floods and all. On our 50 acres, we grew cabbage, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, carrots, parsnips, spinach and lettuce. I couldn't speak a word of English. Fortunately, my sister-in-law took me with her wherever she went out on errands. I learned to cook, knit and sew clothes for my children. There was flooding and drought, but the floods were worse. Looking back after 40 years, I have no regrets. The changing seasons are very beautiful the bright sunlight in summer, the autumn leaves falling and the snow on the hills. During the Second World War, a hugely increased amount of vegetables were needed to feed the New Zealand armed forces and the American forces in the Pacific had stationed here. 60% of the vegetables consumed by the armed forces were grown by market gardeners. Most Chinese leased their land for three main reasons. One, it was the most affordable option. Two, they planned to return to China. And thirdly, even if they could afford to buy European land, owners were reluctant to sell to the so-called heathen Chinese. After 1945, the political situation in China remained unstable, so many Chinese purchased their properties here. The war years were good for them, and they were able to give their children educational opportunities they'd not had. They became, among other things, doctors, lawyers, teachers and engineers. Most of the gardener's produce was sold at twice-weekly auction marts, but the growth in supermarkets in the 1990s and the subsequent decline of the neighbourhood fruit and vegetable shops brought fundamental changes. Growers had to sell to supermarkets who controlled the prices. Market gardens became less and less profitable. The 140-year era of the Chinese market garden was coming to a close. The economic contribution of these market gardens has been enormous. Their major project today is ensuring that the history is recorded and that the communities and way of life are not forgotten. Several publications and research groups are contributing to this. 
Among the material I found invaluable in putting this piece together are James Beattie's Chinese Market Gardening in New Zealand, Exchange and Interaction, and Sons of the Soil, Chinese Market Gardens in New Zealand by Lily Lee and Ruth Lamb. Linda's voice was Leslie Paris. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. Sir Robert Stout has now been largely forgotten, yet he was arguably the most influential creator of democratic New Zealand. This Dunedin lawyer was twice the country's premier and pushed as an MP for many of the things we now take for granted, such as votes for women, free secondary education, access to land for small farmers and fair labour laws. Bill Southworth has been looking at his career. Robert Stout was an intellectual and an agnostic who opposed the teaching of religion in schools and was an enemy of the Bible in schools movement. He detested the class system in the old country and was keen to break up the large land holdings in the South Island. However, although his influence had been great, he later left politics and ended his days as a long-serving New Zealand Chief Justice. In 1844, Stout was born in Lerwick in the Shetland Islands. His family and their circle often debated literary and theological matters, and he attributed this to the strong debating skills he later displayed in Parliament. His memory of the cruelty of the Crofter evictions in the Shetland Islands gave him a lifelong hatred of landlordism. He believed that because land was in limited supply, private ownership of it created a monopoly which should be broken up by the state owning the land and then leasing it to small farmers. Years later, in New Zealand, in a packed public meeting, he would say, I look upon land as a monopoly, and a monopoly the state has a right to control. We have still in our possession, as a colony, millions of acres of land. There's no question more practical to us than to lay down some rule for ourselves as to how the lands we have shall be dealt with. We have, therefore, a right to take care that in our legislation for land we have left the ills of the past and the wrongs done to people in other countries shall not be enacted here. Stout wanted to keep the social problems of the old world, caused by a powerful landlord class and the mass of the population being landless, out of New Zealand. The Liberal Party, in which Stout was Minister of Lands, went on to break up large estates and to make Crown land available to many farmers under leasing arrangements. And, in an early echo of the current debate about capital gains tax and how to control runaway property prices, he went on to say, We find that land is not only a monopoly, in that respect different from other kinds of property, but that it increases in value without, perhaps, the landlord doing anything to make it increase. And what has happened to the man who has land near a settlement? Instead of his land being worth less, it may have increased in value a hundredfold. Stout immigrated to Dunedin in 1863, eventually becoming a teacher at John Shaw's Grammar School in Albany Street. In 1871, he was one of the first students, the very first he claimed, to enrol at the brand new University of Otago. Later he became a lawyer in the office of William Downey Stewart, and then a barrister on his own account. He became well known as a brilliant pleader before juries, as he knew how to work on their emotions. In his public debates, Stout was also known to work up the emotions of some Dunedin churchmen. The Kirk still had a major influence in community affairs, and he found the city in a ferment of moral and theological controversy. Stout revelled in this atmosphere and became a controversial leader of free thought. 
He gave particular offence by questioning the stories of the miracles and the divinity of Christ. Although an agnostic, he saw religion as a type of morality which had been perverted by the dogmatism and hatreds arising from unhealthy divisiveness between the various churches. In his later political career, he pushed strongly for free secondary education and for religion to be kept out of state schools, something that became a cornerstone of our educational system. In a secular state, religion must be left to the individual, and any religion that requires the state's care is not worth much. And therefore, in your secular schools, in your state schools, you must lay down this principle that we can recognize no nationality, no creed, and no race. If a democracy is to be grand, it must have high-class educated men and have its avenues open to these men without distinction of race, distinction of creed, and without distinction of wealth. Herbert Stout was a complex figure. He said of himself that he was no socialist, and he blamed poverty on the failing of individuals. He believed poverty was a punishment for selfishness, ignorance, wastefulness, and imprudence. His political career began when he was elected to the Otago Provincial Council in 1872 as a member for Caversham. Next, he was elected to Parliament as a member for Caversham, and then, three years later, as a member for the city of Dunedin. His formidable debating skills stored him in good stead although he tended to offend less skilful debaters by mocking their less effective efforts. In 1878, he was made Attorney General in Sir George Grey's government and was particularly influential in passing electoral and trade union reforms. Stout resigned from the House and the Land Ministry in 1879, saying he couldn't exist on his parliamentary income and needed to return to his legal practice. He was appointed to the Otago Land Board and set his sights on the large landholders who were avoiding restrictions on the amount of land any one person could possess. The Otago Daily Times complained that he made these cases, quote, a contest between rich and poor and used them as a stepping stone to political popularity. In 1884, he returned to the House as a member for Dunedin East, forming his own ministry with him as Premier and Julius Vogel as Colonial Treasurer. This ministry fell quickly when it lost a vote of confidence, but was back within months with Stout as Premier for a second time. Some of the things we take for granted today had their genesis with politicians like Stout. As Minister of Education for two years from 1885, he remembered the good education he'd had in Scotland and strongly advocated the establishment of free secondary and technical education. We must have universal education. People will say, oh, by all means, maintain the primary schools. But as for grammar schools and high schools, those who want that sort of education should pay for it. The school I was brought up at was a school for the poor, not a school for the rich. If it had been a school for the rich, I should not have had a chance of being educated. If I had my way, I should make the high schools as free as primary schools here. He was also a strong advocate for equal rights for women, and in 1878 introduced the electoral bill which made women ratepayers eligible to vote and stand for Parliament. He was largely responsible for the Married Women's Property Act, which declared a woman was capable of owning and disposing of property in her own right. With his wife Anna, he helped to campaign for the eventual successful crusade to give women the vote.
A group of progressive politicians, including Stout, passed a women's suffrage bill in 1893 through both the lower and upper houses, with the upper house narrowly passing it after some members who had not been in favour changed their votes because of Prime Minister Seddon's attempt to kill the bill in the upper house. After he left politics in 1898, he was appointed Chief Justice of New Zealand in the following year and held the post for 28 years. He died in 1930. The Law Library at Otago University is named after him, as is the Research Centre at Victoria University. In a speech to voters at Auckland, he summed up his political philosophy. What have we come here from? Do you think the earth is perfect? Take and read a chapter of the social life of London. Think of the degradation and the vice of our large cities. We came to this colony... Many of us and those who are born here, I hope, are inflamed with the same desire to make this colony grander, better, and to have it free from the blots of the social life of older lands. I'm grateful to Papers Past for much of this material and to Te Ara Encyclopedia of New Zealand. This is Bill Southworth reporting. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.